Welcome back to Restaurant Prep Podcast with me, your host, Jack Cole. So today I'm joined by Matthew Pickett from Oceans Unmanned, who's joining us from Florida. So Matthew, welcome. And just to kick things off, you mind telling us uh, about your background? Thank you. Good to be here, Jack. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, my name is Matt Pickett. Uh, I was a manned aircraft pilot for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, which is an atmospheric and environmental research agency for the U.S. government. For 20 years, I flew a variety of aircraft for a variety of environmental research monitoring missions, everything from polar bear surveys in the Arctic to high altitude remote sensing for coastal mapping, habitat mapping. So as I retired from that about 10 years ago, NOAA was just getting into the unmanned aircraft system uh, business. They had two hand-me-down drones from the U.S. military. And back then, you needed to be a licensed FAA aircraft pilot to fly drones in the airspace. And so as I was retiring from flying manned aircraft, NOAA said, hey, can you help us figure out if we can use UAS um, for the stuff you were doing either to replace or supplement some of the environmental research you were doing from, from aircraft? And I was a little reluctant at first because the, I didn't think the technology was quite there yet. It was kind of directly you know, to support military operations. And I couldn't quite wrap my head around how it would help environmental research or, or researchers. Um, but they finally dragged me into it. And I said, yes, I'll, I'll help you and started to see the potential a little bit. And as I was working for NOAA on that contract, started getting contacted by other research entities, state agencies, federal agencies, universities, other researchers and say, hey, we're kind of interested in this technology as well. Can you help us facilitate the use of this technology? And, and my par partner, uh, Brian Taggart, he was retiring from NOAA at the same time. And he said, you know, there's an opportunity here, kind of a niche for a nonprofit uh, that is kind of focused on facilitating the use of this technology for environmental research and monitoring. So about Eight years ago, we launched Oceans Unmanned with, with that kind of mandate to help us facilitate the use of technology uh, for environmental research and monitoring. And kind of our business model is we're almost constantly putting ourselves out of business because an entity will kind of reach out to us and we see ourselves as kind of Kickstarters, right? Hey, can we use this technology for this research uh, requirement? And we say, okay, yes, we think we can do it. Here's the platform you need. Here's kind of the sensors you need. Here's the stack of paperwork and permits you need. And if this works for you, then we can train your guys in-house so you can handle that. And that's probably, you know, 75 to 80% of our clients. You know, we kind of kickstart them, self-start them, and they we build that house. We build that capacity in-house. A smaller percentage is like, you know, I don't want anything to do with drones. If you guys just come and do this requirement once a year and give us the data, then we don't have to worry about all the technology and permits and stuff. And you just give us the data and we'll be happy. So that, that that's kind of the mix uh, of our kind of business model currently. And more specifically, what have been some of those contexts and projects that you've been deploying drone technology in? Uh, everything from, you know, marine debris surveys working with the ocean cleanup out in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, where we were flying drones ahead of the recovery system to try to identify, it was, it was kind of a two-part mission. One was to identify higher concentrations of surface debris 
so that we could direct the recovery um, system towards those higher concentrations. And two was to kind of evaluate their efficiency by surveying a patch of ocean for the marine debris. Then the system would go through and then we'd survey that same patch of ocean to see what their percentage recovery was. And so that, that was one of the missions we did for them. Other missions include salmon habitat mapping out on the West Coast. You know, there's a lot of money to kind of restore salmon habitat because it's a key species. And so we would go down there and survey looking at, you know, water flow, water depths, water temperature, um, the kind of terrain and uh, around the river to, to look at that habitat restoration efforts. And you could actually see, you know, kind of through our visual uh, photography where the salmons had the salmon had kind of cleared out the cobble to create a nest, which is called a salmon red. Uh, because they would overturn the cobble. And so the new cobble underneath would be kind of white without having the algae. So you'd see these white circles. So you could actually count salmon nest in, in the river as well. Uh, we're currently doing some work up in uh, New England, doing um, gray seal surveys. Muskegon Island is like the largest breeding colony of gray seals in North America. And we go up there once a year at the peak of the pup season, which unfortunately is in January. And in New England um, and do surveys to count the pups annually to look at trends and, and uh, distribution and abundance for, for gray seals up there as well. So that just, and we do a lot of coastal mapping too for nautical charts. Um, it, it's a wide variety of missions and I've only scratched the surface of what we've done over the past few years. But if any of those interest you, I can get into more details. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Tell us a little bit what's going on in New England. In that context that sounds great right. in new england, new england what you've got going on off in january and uh break that down a little bit more in the cold. yeah so what, what's interesting is um you know most mammals they pup or uh, have their offspring in the springtime right that's classic you know animal behavior um but the gray seals in new england have evolved over time to have their pups in January. And the reason is that is because the number one predator uh, is white sharks up there. And if they pup in spring, then the, the waters are loaded with great white sharks, which um, really reduces the survivability of their pups. And so over time, they've evolved to pup during January, which the water is colder. And so the, the sharks aren't as abundant up, up there. And so unfortunately for the researchers, we have to go out there and the height of a New England winter to try to survey. Uh, and we support their capture. I mean, they capture pups out there. They weigh pups. Um, and we fly um, both visual cameras uh, and infrared and multi-spec cameras to try to evaluate health. One of the interesting things that we're doing now with um, visual imagery is create 3D models of individual animals. And you can start to do, you know, kind of size, length, and even body mass estimations um, from stitching together this 3D model. And so it, it could be a way, it still has a little bit of refining to do, but it's turning out to become a way to kind of do body assessment without actually touching the animals and so it's a it's a less invasive way to do some of that that work we're doing up there and since you began uh eight years ago or so and you mentioned you were a little bit hesitant to get into things see how 
um, if technology was, was quite there yet. How, how has you seen technology improve since then um, from where you started and compared to where it is today? Yeah, I think, you know, two of the biggest changes or three of the biggest changes is the resolution of the cameras. I think that military drone had a five megapixel camera on it. Uh, and now we routinely fly 42 megapixel cameras um, at altitude. And so you can imagine, I mean, that's a 10 times better resolution. And so you can get finer details for the habitat you're monitoring um, or the animals that you're, you're monitoring. Plus, you can fly at a higher altitude um, with a higher resolution camera. And so, therefore, you can cover more ground uh, with the drones. I think the other big change is just the user interface. The military drone required a two-week training course and a, a crew of three people to launch and recover it and, and flight plan. Um, and so, it was a big operation that was you know, very expensive too. And with the advent of, you know, what they call prosumer drones, which is a step up from what you can get at Best Buy, you know, for 10 to $15,000 and, you know, a couple hours of training, a day or two of training, uh, you can collect very useful data. And once you invest in that, um, it costs pennies to refly it every day, right? If you're doing manned aircraft surveys once a year, it's very expensive to get that aircraft in the air. But if once you've bought a drone, done the training, you can go out there and collect that data on a weekly basis of whatever you're monitoring, whether it's habitat or biological monitoring. And all it costs is your time and the electricity to, to charge it up. So it, uh, you know, I think those are two biggest changes is just the power of the sensor uh, and the user friendliness of these systems that, you know, I could take you out there and by tomorrow, uh, I could have you flying surveys that would collect, you know, quality scientific information with one of these systems. Great. And your guiding ethos is uh, conservation, education and protection. Um, I'm just wondering how, particularly in the education aspect of that, how you interact with, um, with students, with sort of colleges and universities and a pathway that young people might, uh, young people who are, might be interested in getting into what, what it is that you, you do. Um, yeah, what what would be what would be some advice that you'd give, and uh, how do you interact with those those organizations and and groups? Yeah, we we try to do presentations at local universities and community college, a few high schools we've done where we kind of do a presentation about you know technology for conservation, you know, kind of more focused on on the drone side. But what really excites us about the education piece is bringing in kind of engineers and technologists into the conservation space. I mean, historically, it's like, okay, I want to save the whales. And you have biologists who work in that. And pretty, you know, there was walls between engineering and technology and then biology or environmental research and monitoring. And technology allows uh, to bring a lot more excited kids across, you know, across technology or across fields and so trying to excite and encourage, you know, engineering students or computer science majors. My daughter is an engineer um, and, you know, she works in the, in the environmental space right now. And I think that's fantastic because when I graduated as a mechanical engineer, it was never really a thought that I would do environmental research or biological monitoring. There just was no mechanism to have that happen. And so I think with using technology and conservation, we have the opportunity to inspire a whole new generation 
of kind of tech kids, science kids, computer science kids, tech kids to get in to this field and, and help with the conservation. And so that's our kind of focus on education is to get, you know, these kids excited to use their technical skills uh, into something that hasn't historically uh, been able to happen. And you mentioned previously uh, a few moments ago, basically some of the different projects you've been involved with. I was just wondering what projects you're involved with right now and what sort of exciting things you've got happening uh, you know, in the coming years and coming months. Um, in the pipeline yeah well, so we're, we're as i mentioned we're heading back up to new england in yeah. january um and then in springtime um we're going to go back up there and start looking at tethered drones and we're not necessarily looking at the peak of the pupping season but just kind of standard counts where we can have the drone flying above the boat kind of following me and with a tethered drone you don't you're not limited flight time because you're powering the drone and so you can fly for three or four 12 hours whatever you want to and cover a lot of ground and so we're going to demo that or, or test that out and we've tested the tethered drone system before for the marine debris project but now we're trying to bring that to see if it will be useful for biological monitoring and so we're doing that um we also have some turtle habitat um surveys down in louisiana the gulf of mexico uh where we're using drones both with uh regular cameras and um, multi-spectral cameras to evaluate uh sea turtle habitat we're also evaluating it for kind of at sea sea turtles uh, distribution abundance surveys um and also actually supporting uh, sea turtles uh, tagging support so if you can imagine you're on a boat you need to tag a dozen turtles and you're just standing on the boat, it's really hard to see. You know, you only see, you know, 100 yards on either side of the boat. But if you launch a drone, you know, hey, a half mile out there, there's a turtle, let's go. And, and you can really increase your efficiency of your tagging efforts um, in, in, in that way. So, A little bit more broadly speaking, have you observed um, changes that could be sort of attributed to climate change and, you know, changes in sort of sea patterns and um, what we are that, that's another project that we're currently working on is we have a project out on the west coast to look at sea level rise at four sites in california uh, basically doing you know kind of three-dimensional terrain modeling and we're doing you know kind of a series of four flights to collect that imagery we just finished collecting the second of that four uh collect series we haven't processed that data yet so i don't think in you know the eight months between the first two, we'll see much difference, but it's a long-term and relatively inexpensive way. If you pick a couple of Sentinel sites, start monitoring them, we'll be able to, to, to see some change. But broadly speaking, um, you know, we haven't been doing this long enough to notice, you know, kind of any kind of dramatic measurable change um, that would be, you know, scientifically valid, I guess. Sure, of course. Um, and just moving back to the technology side of things, course drones and the rest of it and lots of things you mentioned um developing very quickly how can you see things uh developing in say five to ten years from now so i think um the biggest things that will be kind of the next quantum leap for game changers is you know easier ability to fly beyond visual line of sight for drones because right now in the u.s you still have to be able to see the drone and it's getting easier but you're basically you know, a mile on either side of where you are to survey, and then you can move and fly another mile on either side. So 
Um, you're somewhat limited, but that limit hasn't been too bad because of the battery you know, technology doesn't allow you to fly that long anyway. But now we're getting systems that can fly 90 minutes because um, they're fixed wing, longer duration. And we're actually constrained by that visual line of sight rather than battery life. And so we are not fully taking advantage of that capability. So that's one is as a technology for, you know, integration into the airspace and detecting and avoiding manned aircraft becomes easier than allowing these systems to fly, you know, well beyond visualized sight, especially when you're working coastally, right? Because you're flying offshore from a boat or coastal where it's not as crowded with regular aircraft traffic, it should be an easier path. So that's, that's one. And number two, of course, is uh, AI or machine learning, um, where, you know, open water surveys, if I go out there and fly a drone for six hours and collect six hours worth of videotape looking for, say, whales out there, then somebody has to sit there and look for those six hours. And, and that's not a very efficient, right? But if you can launch that drone um, and have it search and identify you know, something on the surface, whether it's whale or whatever you're looking for, uh, then that becomes very, very efficient, right? Because you're letting the machine look for those cues and, and identify what it is. And so that becomes hyper-efficient. So that will be, you know, those two things will help for these open water and coastal projects where you have those two capability combines. And we've done a little bit of what we call edge AI, which is where you embed the microcomputer on the drone. We are doing this for the marine debris project. And right now we're at the point where we have... Um, it basically, you know, a very dumb AI where it's either yes or no, is there something in the water that's different, right? And it works really well um, in flat blue water because if it sees anything white, anything that's not flat blue, um, then it pings and says, yes, th yes, there's something here and sends back that location um, to the laptop real time. And so that's, you know, kind of a step in that direction, because what we were doing before is we'd fly a survey to come back then run it through a computer, you know, a, a laptop based AI, and we could create heat maps. But to really be efficient, you want to be able to do that real time. And so we've developed, you know, with a small kind of Raspberry Pi microcomputer, able to embed that capability on the drone itself. And so if it sees something, it'll send back that image uh, and a location. And so you can start to see the real potential there for for having that edge compute uh, on board the system instead of you know doing it post-process for real time and finally uh, matthew what would you say to young people who are perhaps listening to this feeling inspired what would you advice would you give them well i, I think to to start you know playing around with undemand systems there's quite a few um, community colleges and colleges. I know Duke Marine Lab has a summer program where they can, you know, over a course of six weeks can give you a full boot camp on using technology um, for, for environmental research and monitoring. So there's programs out there for young kids, even, you know, in high school now um, that they can figure out, you know, their role in this and how to get some basic level certification um, to kind of pursue, pursue this. Getting your FAA, you know, Part 107 drone license is good. Um, there's online training classes you can you can do um, through Dart Drone. And I said, like I said, there's a lot of universities that we get invited to teach their kind of unmanned systems or research class. I know there's a collaborative center now open with NOAA down in um, 
in Mississippi that does some some programs as well. So th- there, there's a few bubbling up um, that if you're interested in this, uh, you can get certification or at least some experience and reach out to other you know, entities. Oceans Unmanned, we take interns. If we have a longer projects, we'll take interns out in the field with us too to get to get them exposure. Brilliant. And where can people find your work? What you're up to? Uh, our, our website is online, www.oceansonman.org. That that website is not as uh, current as Twitter. If you follow us on Twitter, you can find out a little bit more real-time what we're doing. At, I think our handle is at Oceans Unmanned. So. Perfect. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jack.